Okay, so we're going to continue to look at 1 Thessalonians. This is our second lesson in this, in this uh, term. And uh, as Nick was sharing with us last week and introduced us to it, Paul is writing this from Corinth in about AD 51. He's passed through Thessalonica on his journey and he's had to flee with um, Timothy and Silas. And so uh, the ch young church in Thessalonica is a few months old uh, and uh, Paul is writing this letter as words of encouragement and we pick it up in chapter 2 and uh, I shall read that now and uh, this is Paul speaking to Thess the Thessalonians of himself and Timothy and Silas and it says this you know brothers and sisters that our visit to you was not without results we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, you who believed. I'm oh, sorry. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but actually as it is, the word of God, which is needed at work which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Thanks, Kevin. And may uh, God's Spirit illuminate this word as we, as we go along uh, this morning. We're doing as we do most uh, September's Back to Basics, but better is the plan. We come back round to um, what is the gospel, um, what is gospel ministry, 
Neil, something's ringing a bit. I don't know whether it's that. Um, and so 1 Thessalonians is a great letter um, to start with because it's, it's, it's Paul's first or his second letter. Galatians might have been earlier, um, but if not, then this was the first um, letter Paul wrote uh, to one of the new churches he's planted, in this case uh, in Thessalonica on his uh, second missionary journey. I wonder, um, parents, or maybe observers of families, um, have you ever noticed that the, ca- the kids seem to grow up like their parents, whether they like it or not? Okay, so sometimes they go completely the flip, um, and they decide to be the total opposite. But kids read your values and your heart, and they respond to those much more than they respond to your um, instruction. That's why you end up telling them one thing and they do something else, because they see you, and what they see you doing is much more powerful than the words you say. And I think we can make an argument for something similar happening here in Thessalonica. So last time we looked at how the gospel arrived there, and so we got a a picture of the ideal response to Christian ministry because the the gospel came with power and conviction brought about by the Holy Spirit, Uh, and this little group of Thessalonians, they, they responded... Uh, And it's become visible um, in their lives. There is evidence of of the Spirit at work. And so they set us a great example, and we've seen that in chapter 1. But now, as we turn to chapters uh, 2 and 3, we read about the heart that is in Paul. And I guess we would say Silas and Luke and Timothy as well. The heart that caused them to get out there and bring this message in the first place. And I think you'll begin to see that the Thessalonians have understood this heart and it's had an impact upon them. So we see Paul taking on four responsibilities, or he draws four pictures of his ministry. So although he's an apostle, he's accredited by Christ to bring definitive uh, revelation from Christ... In this instance, he's acting as an evangelist or a church planter. But I think there are four illustrations here for any kind of uh, ministry. So I don't know what your ministry is. Okay, you might be your youth home group, or it might be an elder in the church. You might be a home group leader. You might just be an encourager of other people, or you might be a parent yourself, in which case you are a minister Um, to your children. So wherever you find yourself, I think these four things apply to ministry. You are a gospel steward. You are a mother. And you are a father. And you are a herald. Four things that you are in any gospel ministry. And we're going to look at them briefly in turn. First of all, Paul says he's, he's a gospel steward. This is the one he doesn't actually use the word steward, but he says we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. He's a steward of the gospel. Once you've got the gospel, uh, you have a responsibility to it, and the responsibility is to keep it true, keep it simple, keep it real, keep it plain, keep it honest. So the background to this is that Paul and Silas, they were dragged before the authorities in Philippi. You can go back and read that a very famous story in Acts 16 about how they're freed in the middle of the night and, and, the, and the jailer comes to the Lord. 
So coming to Thessalonica, they meet trouble again. You can imagine that they might have just run away. And actually, some of Paul's detractors might be saying that about him. Where's he gone? Uh, He's just run off and left you. Or they could have come to Thessalonica and said, well, this time round, let's just be a little bit more subtle. Let's just shade this ministry um, here and there so it doesn't cause a reaction. But not a bit of it. Paul says that his first responsibility is to the Lord. So whatever ministry you're in to people, your first responsibility is to the Lord that you have this gospel and you have to keep it honest and you have to keep it true. So Paul cannot shade the truth, he says. He cannot be underhand in any of the ways he goes about telling the gospel. He cannot use flattery. And he says as well, it may look like he's run away, but he's not in it for the money. And he's not in it for the fame, he's in it for the Lord. That should be your first instinct if you find yourself responsible for telling the gospel to anybody else. And we would have to say, like Paul, we're not heretics being entrusted with the truth. We're just going to keep it true and plain. Not coming with, with dodgy motives. Not coming when we bring the gospel to look good or to be famous or to earn a living not trying to trick anybody into following us, not trying to butter anybody up, not doing it out of a secret greed. We're not doing it to please people, firstly. At all, we're doing it to please God. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that at all, that stuff you do brings pleasure to to God's heart? God looks down on the stuff that you do and, and, and smiles. Happy with what you do. So what's your ministry? And when the ministry maybe doesn't seem to penetrate, what do you do? When the ministry causes offence, what do you do? Do you, do you change it? Do you, do you soften it? We can be creative. We do ministry in all kinds of creative ways, but we have to be stewards of the gospel and the plain, simple message of Christ and the cross and of judgment has to come through. So that's the first one. Very simply, you are a steward of God. But Paul then says he's like a a nursing mother. It's a great picture, isn't it? Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. We loved you so much um, that we were delighted to share uh, with you not only the gospel, gospel of God, but our lives as well. There's a kind of gospel ministry where you feel that people care for the message, but they don't care for you. So they've got this first one about pleasing God, and they're coming out, and they're uh, throwing uh, the word of God at you, uh, thinking they're pleasing God, but you sense they've got no interest in you and your life. That should never be so. (coughs) It should never be so. But the fact is, churches are made up largely of introverts, so quite often it is so. And it is a challenge. But real gospel ministry shares life as well as truth. Very simple. So nursing mothers, how much time do nursing mothers get away from their kids? Not very much. How can you tell the nursing mother, you know, going around the supermarket? 
to look absolutely shattered. With a little one in the trolley, and maybe a little one along as well. So there is no clear distinction between life and ministry. There really isn't. I mean, you would know that. Pastors know that. There's no clear distinction uh, between life and ministry because ministry involves life. What is discipleship? It is life upon life, dealing with every aspect of life. I often wondered, kind of like my brother-in-law does discipleship training, and I wonder, what do they do in discipleship training? Um, what do they train them? Well, discipleship is bringing your life to bear on somebody else's life in the context of their life, dealing with all their life. Because Christian truth impacts uh, the whole of life. And that's why he, there's no clear distinction between life and ministry. So if you intend to minister the gospel, you have to get deeply involved in people's lives. On the flip side, if you're involved in someone's life deeply, then you're a potential gospel minister. And you might be the only gospel minister that they hear. So you have to go back to being a steward and make sure they hear the gospel true and plain. So Paul is like a, Paul is like a nursing mother to them. And um, actually, he's like a single mom. Um, who's having to bring ministry to them and then he's having to work night shifts um, in, in his tent making just to, to make ends meet. One of my Bible college lecturers um, had started his uh, ministry at one church and he started it by sleeping in the vestry. Little, I've seen it. Um, little tiny church. He was prepared to go and... Um, and share his life. Um, so look at your ministry. Okay, you know, Sunday club, uh, parents, youth home groups. I don't know why young people come to mind when I, when I say this, but are you prepared to share your life with the little oiks? Okay. Um, as, as well as tell them the gospel. I think that's because I find uh, youth ministry the hardest. But it's true of adult ministries as well. Home group leaders, I think you do this, and I think you do this automatically. You share your life um, with your home group members. So, steward of gospel, nursing mother, um, and a fourth thing, an encouraging father. Paul goes on to say, you are witnesses of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you, and we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God. I don't think we're making a, a particularly clear distinction between what the father does, what the mother does here. They seem to flow into one another. But Paul is setting them an example. And that's your third principle in ministry. You can't ask people to do things you don't do. It's dead simple but true. But then notice the, the each of you. We dealt with each of you as a father deals with his children. I guess, dads, sooner or later, you draw alongside um, each of your kids and you have a conversation with them. That usually means, you know, something's up, doesn't it? But um, hopefully not. It doesn't have to mean something's up. But you, you pull them aside well, one by one. You say, hey, look at this. And that's what Paul does pulls each one of them aside and has a bit of a conversation. Encouraging, comforting, 
urging. And fathers, is that what you're doing with your kids? I hope it is, and if it is, then don't stop now, carry on. There is this temptation in ministry, and uh, you may have heard me use it before, but there's a temptation to, to, to treat your group or your, or your congregation is, is to treat them like a lawn. Okay, to use, the Bible uses a lot of plant illustrations. To treat them like a lawn. Um, so you treat them all the same, you want to water it all at once, you want to fertilise it all at once, um, and you want to cut it all at once. But all these people sitting out here this morning, you're not a lawn, strangely enough. You're not even all the same species of grass. You're all different, um, unique plants. You all need different kinds of pruning, need different fertilisers, you thrive in, um, in, in different conditions, and that will be true in your groups. Treat them as individuals. I was very challenged uh, this summer. I read a book by Eugene Peterson, which I've read a number of times before. But somewhere in that book, he says you have to exegete the person as well as you exegete the text. So exegete may be a word you don't use if you're not a preacher. But to, to exegete is to understand it and, and to pick out um, and to uh, take apart uh, and, and get the meaning of, of a text. It's what preachers it's what preachers do, and that's why he's using the word. He's saying you have to exegete the person. You have to know them uh, as well as you know the text. And you have to then um, treat them as individuals. So when you prepare, this is a challenge, when you pray, prepare your home group or your youth home group, do you think through how is this material going to fall with each of these individual people, with each of their individual situations? Not many people do that, but it, I have seen it done and done well and seen the impact that it produces. So whatever ministry you're in, you're a steward, gospel steward, you're a nursing mother, you're an encouraging father, and you are a herald. And your responsibility there is to proclaim the royal word. So if we go back to verse 9, Paul says, um, Surely you remember our toil and hardship. We worked in order not to be a burden while we preached the gospel of God to you. Now, I think this translation preach is sometimes uh, unfortunate um, because it gives the impression that this applies to preachers and people formally teaching the word. And the word, it means heralding. So perhaps a better translation would be proclaiming. This is not about preaching. It's about anybody who is, who is heralding, proclaiming, bringing this um, gospel word into new situations and we've seen a really interesting uh, a really interesting example of it haven't we in the last few days um, after the accession council uh, said that Charles was king um, then the heralds had to go out all around the country and it was all a bit archaic wasn't it um, they went to the different uh, the different national capitals and, and they went to the big cities uh, and guys went out and they, they proclaimed Charles, King Charles III is, is king. And you can imagine it was necessary before, uh, before the telegraph, um, let alone before the, the internet, that somebody had to go uh, and proclaim, yes, we, uh, the monarch has died. The new is king. And so we are heralds in that same way. 
going into situations with this news that Jesus um, is king. But it comes back to where we started, or where we talked about last week. They received this message. Uh, they heard this heralded message, the Thessalonians, and they received it as it was, as the, as the word of God. So you're a herald. You go and say, Jesus is king, but you also say, Jesus saves you from the coming wrath. Talks about Jonah, didn't we? Jonah and his five-word preaching. 40 days and then judgment. Um, we'll come back to this, but without it, the, the gospel is not whole. You haven't given people the, the, the whole gospel. An interesting part of the basic message also, along with this gospel, uh, this, remember this is a church a few months old at most, and Paul says, you, you suffered. Um, you suffered. And he tells them, we told you this was going to happen. So we're heralds. We go out and we say there is a new king. But if you're going to come on board with this new king who will save you from judgment, it'll be tough. So can you accept this ministry? I think all of you, everybody here, has, has some aspect uh, of this uh, of gospel ministry in, in, in their lives, and you're a steward of the gospel. Gospel is the power of God for salvation. You're a nursing mum, an encouraging father, and a herald, a royal herald. But what do you do when your heart is not in it? What do you do when your heart is not in it or you've got tired? Well, I want us to read through the rest of chapter 2 uh, and chapter 3. And just listen to Paul's heart <coughs> and draw one or two points before we get to the end. So Paul says, brothers and sisters, we can open this up. This is on page 1187 um, in the Bible. Um, grab a Bible from in front of you. It would be really helpful to have this open. Brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Wow. You know, Paul's been filled with this love for the lost, and we ought to pray uh, that we have this love, and we ought to pray for, for love to fill our hearts for the, uh, for the groups and, and the people who are under our care, but... But Paul keeps his eye on the end. Keeps his eye on the end point. Jesus is coming again. 
our Lord Jesus when he comes. Jesus is, is coming again and he anticipates that when Jesus comes, he is going to have great joy because there's going to be this bunch of Thessalonians um, standing, standing next to him. So imagine your group, uh, and there's you in glory, and then there's these people um, standing next to you, and you kind of going, woohoo! Um, these are the people I, I ministered to. These are the people I encouraged. These are the people I was a mother uh, and a father to. These are the people I, I, I pressed on when they were really annoying. These were the little oiks that I knew when they were at their most <clears throat> 12-year-old selves. And they are my joy. And they are my crown. Not because, not because I'm glorious, but because Jesus gave them to me. Jesus worked in me, um, through me, to them. Jesus gave me the word, and I gave it to them, and, and he worked through the word by his spirit. And look, they're here now. Woo! That's my joy. <clears throat> that's, my, that's my crown. Your challenge is to look at them like that, okay? <laughs> your lounge kids, your own kids, your home group, elders, those tricky people. Of course, we don't have any of those. The elderly people you look after. I'm, I'm going to stand there, and those people are going to be there because I ministered to them. And I'm going to glory in that, not with, not with a kind of selfish, aren't I great kind of glory, but with a kind of uh, a great thanksgiving to Jesus kind of glory that, uh, that he used me um, to reach these people. And out of this passion, Paul says, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it left to be left by ourselves in Athens, um, and we sent Timothy who's our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen you and encourage you in the faith so that no one will be unsettled in these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that, you, that we would be persecuted and it turned out that way, as you well know. And for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, you can just feel Paul's frustration and tension. He doesn't deny that. I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labours might have been in vain. So the opposite is you're standing there in glory before Christ and, oh, the tempter got to them. That They're not standing there with you. The, the tempter got to them and your work was in vain so there is in Paul don't you hear it this agonizing passion that I'm gonna I'm gonna work I'm gonna find a way to get to you so that you don't fall by the wayside so that my so that my labors in this um, have not been in vain 
And there is this kind of thought in, in Paul's mind, I, I'm not waiting for somebody else to do it. I would go if I could go. He's, he's blocked by Satan. We don't really know what that means, but he couldn't get back to them at this point. But there is this sense, if I don't see these people through, who is going to do it? And thankfully, he says, Timothy has just now come to us. And that's the reason he's writing the letter. Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us. That sounds so like a family letter, doesn't it? Just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Oh my goodness. Now, what does he say? Now we really live because you are standing firm in the Lord. It's that kind of the attitude to, 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 to ministry. Do you, do you feel that way? You would feel that way about your own kids, I guess, but do you feel that way about anybody else? You say, now I really live. I really live because you are standing firm. Is that what you're going to be saying? So what you're going to be saying about all the people you minister to, I, I really live because I've seen you stand firm all the way through your life and, until the end. Is that what you're going to be saying about your home group members, about your youth group members? How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? So strangely... We do do ministry for, for, for joy, <laughs> for the joy of seeing it work, for the joy of seeing the Holy Spirit work through the word um, and, and transform people's lives. And Paul says, look at you. Look at you, you've changed. Look at you, you're, you're going on with, with Christ. How can, I, how can I thank God enough for that? Can we say that? And then, of course, he says, night and day. <coughs> Excuse me. We pray most earnestly that we may see you again. Night and day. Continual prayer. It's the other aspect of, of ministry. He wants to get back, but he can't. He's going to pray for them. Night and day. Continual prayer. I'm going to keep coming back to this. Remember, you, you evaluate what you're bothered about because what you're bothered about, you pray about. Night and day, persistent prayer. It's key to ministry. Let's sum it up like this. In our ministries, we are stewards, 
gospel stewards, nursing mothers, encouraging fathers, royal heralds. And your aim is that your children, your groups, your church, your elderly folks will, will stand on Judgment Day. It's struck me like a hammer blow in, in the last week that death is just a temporary state. Death is, death is just a, is a temporary state. We give it way too much weight. Not that it isn't painful. But we live. If Christ comes and doesn't return before, we die. For Christians, we go to be with Christ. If we're not, we're held over for judgment. For that period of time, we're a soul without a body. And then Jesus returns, and we're a body again. On an earth that is either completely new or renewed. The Bible is not entirely clear. This death thing, it's temporary. It's an interruption between your life on this earth and your life on the renewed earth that God is going to make. So this moment, when Jesus returns, and this moment, our key, but we are keeping our eye on this moment. When Jesus returns, that's what Paul's doing. And repeatedly, and we'll come back to this, because Paul speaks about this more, but he's already, if you want to kind of read this through, see how many times he's talked about it. This moment, when Jesus returns, is the moment we're anticipating. This is the moment when those people that we've ministered to and are standing with us um, will be our crown. We need to um, set our eyes on the return of Christ, because death is just a temporary thing. So here's a great prayer to finish with. And we'll use it with Paul. Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all these holy ones. Father God, help, our, help us keep our eyes on what's important in the long, sometimes slow, sometimes discouraging days of ministry, whatever it might be. We want, we long for those we are ministering to, to be there on that day. That they will be our crown, we will, we will rejoice in them and they will rejoice in us, even, even as we fall, uh, fall to our knees in front of Christ. Please set that reality before us more and more powerfully day by day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.